Well, at long last, we are going to wind up our series of sermons on faith based on Hebrews 11. This is number 27 in this series and will be our final message on this subject from this passage of Scripture. As I mentioned to you last week, we have to move at least a few verses into chapter 12. Because the first word in chapter 12 is therefore, or because of everything I just wrote. Therefore, we must continue a bit further to see the conclusion of the teaching. And as many Bible students say, whenever you see a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. You know by now, if you've been listening to any of these messages, that biblical faith is not some mystical feeling of hopefulness. That you just kind of believe, believe, believe that everything will turn out okay. Uh, we've been hammering away at this uh, at the beginning of every message we, uh, for, for months, week after week after week. Faith is confidence in God. Believing all that God has said. Accepting what God says even when we can't understand it all. Faith is conviction to obey what God says to do. Faith brings confirmation. That is, God gives us the assurance that we are on the right track first through the Scriptures and eventually through our circumstances. Biblical faith is not abstract and mystical. It is concrete, solid assurance because its foundation is the Word of God. And this letter to the Hebrews, you may remember, was written about 30 or 35 years after the resurrection of Christ, beginning on the day of Pentecost and continuing for many years, the New Testament church was predominantly Jewish. By the time this letter was written, this letter to to the Hebrews, there was a significant Gentile presence in the New Testament church, but the Jewish presence was still very strong and only began to weaken after the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and then the subsequent dispersion or, or spreading of the Jewish people all over the world. But at the writing of this letter, the city of Jerusalem and the temple were still intact. You may remember from last week I mentioned to you that the Roman government under Julius Caesar about 45 years before Christ approximately had granted Jews a certain liberty to practice their faith without any government interference. You might call it limited sovereignty that they that the Romans had given to them. They could practice the law of Moses and they could enforce it, but they could not execute anyone. And we see, uh, you will remember, of course, uh, that dynamic kind of working itself out in the, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. With Pilate, the Roman governor, having to have the final word, and then Roman soldiers carrying out the execution, the crucifixion of Jesus. That was because of that arrangement between the Jewish nation and the Roman government. This limited sovereignty was continued by Caesar Augustus, who was Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth. And throughout Jesus' earthly ministry and throughout the early years of the church, Judaism was practiced with limited government interference. The early church was persecuted by Jewish authorities. But the Romans viewed Christians as being a branch of Judaism for many years, so they just left them alone. But around the time of the writing of this letter, persecution from Rome was beginning to escalate. And there were many Jewish people who were being tempted to go back to Judaism to avoid the persecution. That's the underlying theme of this letter. 
Don't go back. You can't go back. The old covenant under Moses is over. Jesus is better. Verse 40 of chapter 11 said that God has provided something better for us. Something better than everything that the Old Testament had to offer. And 15 times in this letter, as I've mentioned to you, 15 times in this letter, you see the word better. The whole point of the letter to the Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is better than everything in the Old Testament. And if you want to translate that into the modern world, (coughs) Jesus Christ is better than everything this world has to offer. Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ is better than what any religion has to offer. Far better. And in fact, the apostle who was writing to the Hebrews said said that if, if, if a person went back to Judaism... He said, you are trampling the blood of Christ. You are rejecting what God did on, what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. You are hardening your heart against the truth. You are throwing away Christ's once for all final sacrifice for sins. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back. So all of these illustrations that we've looked at for over all of these months in Hebrews 11, We're all designed to challenge those professing believers to prove up on their confession of faith in Christ. Don't turn back, he said. All the way from Abel in Genesis 4, all the way up to the coming of Christ, people were saved by faith, trusting the promise of God to send the Redeemer, obeying the Lord, patiently waiting for the Redeemer to come. As the Apostle John wrote many years later in 1 John 5, this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith, not our ceremonies, not our religion, not our hopes, not our good works. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith, believing God, trusting what he says, and obeying his word. And as we've been concluding over the last few weeks, real living faith is not affected by our circumstances. Real faith stands the test of suffering and trials and hardship. And last week we examined the first two verses of chapter 12 as the writer of Hebrews challenges his readers to look at this great cloud of witnesses, these faith-filled witnesses that, that are surrounding them, and to lay aside the weights that hold us back and the sins that hold us down, but to keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is our focus, He is our example, He is our confidence. And as we conclude our final thoughts today in this series, I want to ask you this question. Can we see God's discipline with eyes of faith? Can we see God's discipline of us with eyes of faith? I had the privilege of growing up in a faithful Christ-following family. I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was six years old. I grew up listening to Bible lessons and Bible preaching, and thankfully I saw those truths lived out in the lives of my parents. I've been in ministry now for over four decades, and most of that time right here in Hart Butte, and undoubtedly I would say probably 80% of my life is behind me, if not more. And looking back over my life, watching people, helping people, trying to minister to people in a variety of circumstances, I've come to see that one of the major indicators of spiritual health and maturity, if not the number one, but but one of the major indicators of, of spiritual health and maturity is the way people handle trials. Our perspective on suffering, our view of God when we suffer, 
our relationship with God when things get very challenging in this life, our testimony for Christ in the middle of dark days and overwhelming circumstances, that is the test of true faith in the living God. That's the number one indicator, I believe, of spiritual maturity and spiritual health. And in our text this morning, the writer of Hebrews brings forward a, a great challenge to his persecuted, suffering brethren that he was writing to. And that is the challenge of God's discipline. Can we see God's discipline with eyes of faith? You see, we always connect joy and comfort and blessing to the hand of God. But when God puts us into his gymnasium of discipline... And he sweats the daylights out of us and stretches us to the breaking point. Or so we think anyway. We think we're going to break. God's not going to let us break. He's never going to bring us to that point. But we think we're going to break. And so when God puts us into his gymnasium of, of discipline and he sweats the daylights out of us and stretches us to what we think is the breaking point, can we still see that, that circumstance, those events, can we still see that with eyes of faith? That's the challenge I want to lay before you this morning. And I want to share with you three biblical reasons for God's discipline, and then two dangers, two proofs, and two results of God's discipline. You're probably thinking, that sounds like a long outline, Larry. Well, it kind of is. I know there's fried chicken downstairs, but hang on. I might be preaching for another 40 minutes, so Tom... Tom told me before the service, if you hear stomachs growling louder than my voice, that it's time to quit. So we'll see, we'll see how that works, all right? Three biblical reasons for God's discipline, and then two dangers, two proofs, and two results of God's discipline. Let's read our text. We're going to start in chapter 1, I mean, verse 1 again of chapter 12. We read those two verses last week, and we're going to go to verse 11. Therefore, we also, Hebrews 12.1, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'd love to preach those again because that's such a, a fabulous verse, but we did that last week. Verse 3 now, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, meaning Jesus, of course, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. If you're curious where he's quoting from, he's quoting from Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And if you're a Bible highlighter, please mark the first phrase of verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, which we'll talk about in just a moment. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed, meaning their earthly fathers, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. 
Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, as every child will tell you. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Seven times in these 11 verses, we see some form of the word chasten, either a verb or a noun. We often connect that word to getting a spiritual spanking, and although that may be involved, the word is much more broad than that. It's a, it, it's, it's a form of the word child in the Greek language, and it, it just indicates child-rearing, training, tutoring, educating, instructing, correcting, even nurturing. All of those concepts are wrapped up in this English word chasten. That's why I'm calling it discipline. It's a word that we use more often. It's the same idea. Discipline is more than just correction. It is instructing, it is training, it is educating, it is guiding and overseeing a child into maturity. And the writer of Hebrews says that God does that with us. And he says there in verse, in verse 11 that it is usually not fun. It's usually not a fun process. It's not skipping through the wildflowers on the prairie on a sunny spring day, enjoying life with no responsibilities. It is sweating it out in God's gymnasium with a personal trainer called the Holy Spirit who is urging you onward and shouting at you to not give up and do one more push-up, one more sit-up, one more pull-up. Go, don't quit, don't quit, don't quit. You say, wow, chasing's like that? Yeah, it is. If you, if you have ever experienced it, you're well aware of that process. So chastening is something that God brings to every person, as we will see. But there are at least three reasons why God does this. First is God's, God's discipline is for correction. It may be a response to our sin. King David is our example for this. I want you to flip back, if you would, to Psalm 89. Psalm 89. We're going to look at three Bible examples of these three reasons for chastening. Psalm 89. Carol and I have been reading through the Psalms periodically through uh, over the last couple of months. And we just read 89, not too terribly long ago, just a few days ago. Psalm 89. Long, it's a long psalm. We're obviously not going to read all of it. All of you know probably the first verse because there's a little chorus. We go along with it. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth will I make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I have said mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Some of you well-versed Bible students will know that he's referring to the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, where God said, I'm, I'm going to, some descendant of yours, David, is going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem one day forever and ever and ever. And so he's saying that God has said, my faithfulness I will establish. I've made this covenant. I've sworn it to David. Your seed I will establish forever. But look down at verse 28. 
He says, My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed, his descendants, meaning also I will make to endure forever, as his th- and his throne as the days of heaven. But look at verse 30. If his sons forsake my law, and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes, and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod, and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. So God says that even if David's sons sin and forsake his ways he is going to chasten them the the hebrew word punish there means to hold accountable but he's going to keep his promises to david the relationship is not over but god is going to correct them in response to their sin and please don't confuse eternal punishment with chastening Many of God's children, and I've heard many folks say this, they think that God is punishing me because of a sinful choice. Well, I avoid that word punishment because of the way that we use it in our modern world. Because in the Bible, eternal punishment is payment for sin. And if we belong to Christ, we will never experience eternal punishment for sin. Many of you know Romans 5.1, there, therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, if we belong to Christ, we will never experience eternal punishment for sin. So in, God punishes unbelievers, but He disciplines His children. In punishment, God is a judge, but in discipline, God is a father. In punishment, God is responding to his enemy. In discipline, God is responding to his child. In punishment, God is condemning. In discipline, God is training. In punishment, an enemy experiences the wrath of God. In discipline, a child experiences the love of God. So when you and I suffer or God has to rebuke us or chasten us, it is not that we are paying for our sins. Jesus Christ did that on the cross for us. It is, however, that we are learning to not do that again. Because our sins have all been paid for. It's really quite a beautiful thought. See, God's discipline is often a corrective response to our sinful choices and behaviors so that we will learn not to do certain things. Just a couple of hours ago, I walked into my office at home, and my youngest grandson had snuck in there unbeknownst to others, and had reached up on the desk, and he had grabbed this heavy glass paperweight, and he had it in his hand. And I walked around the corner, and he spun around, and he saw me, and went, "Uh uh-oh, and handed it back to me. (laughs) Why? Because he is learning what he is not supposed to do. Okay? And in our spiritual life, God teaches us the same way. 
we learn what we are not supposed to do. God is not punishing us. God is disciplining us because maybe we made some sinful choices. Maybe we made some dumb choices. Maybe we did some things wrong. But God is not punishing us for our sin. If you know Christ as your Savior, God's not punishing you for sin because Jesus took all the punishment on the cross. He is, however, disciplining you so that we learn to not do the same things over and over again. So God's discipline is for correction. Number two, God's discipline is also for prevention. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, some of you automatically already know where we're headed with this. The Apostle Paul is speaking about his thorn in the flesh. And for the sake of our time, we won't read the whole passage here. Just look at number 7, verse 7. We'll read 7, 8, and 9. Paul writes at 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations... A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. But notice in verse 7, he says, Lest... I should be exalted above measure. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Paul does not say that my thorn in the flesh is because I have been exalted above measure. It says, lest I be exalted above measure. In other words, Paul's thorn in the flesh was designed by God to prevent him from becoming arrogant and prideful. He said, because of the abundance of the revelations, as all of most of you know, the Apostle Paul was used by the Holy Spirit of God to write half of the New Testament. And because of the abundance of the revelations, God gave him this thorn in the flesh to prevent him from becoming arrogant and prideful. So God wasn't correcting him, he was preventing him from being proud and stuck on himself. And much of God's discipline is designed in our lives to curb our selfishness and to pull back the reins on our pride and to keep a lid on our sin. And I might say that is a great philosophy of Christian parenting, keeping a lid on your child's sinfulness. Some of you remember when we looked at the book of Samuel, or we looked at Samuel's life a, a number of weeks ago, and remember Eli the high priest was, was Samuel was living in the, the, the temple there, or in the tabernacle there with him, and God gave his first prophecy to, to Samuel. It was a prophetic word of judgment against, against Eli. And the very reason was, God said to, to Eli, your sons have made themselves vile. And you did not restrain them. You see, that concept of of preventing discipline, I mean preventing sin, and and, and using discipline as a prevention, not because you need, need correcting, but to hopefully prevent it so you don't need correcting. So God's discipline is sometimes correction, sometimes it's prevention, and then God's discipline, thirdly, can also be for education. And our, our biblical example of this is the life of Job. If you look at Job 42, please. 
It's right in front of Psalms. You find the beginning of Psalms and Job 42 is the last chapter in Job. So it's right in front of Psalm 1, Job chapter 42. After Job's gone through all the things that he's gone through, everything that he's experienced, and he's had this long session of of asking God questions, and now God's been asking him questions, and God is, in fact, God God spent a, a couple of chapters asking Job questions about like, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I told the ocean to stop right here? Where were you when I put the stars in the sky and told them to move a certain way? Those kinds of questions basically saying to Job, are you God? And of course Job recognizes he is not. Job's a godly man. The Job chapter 1 says he feared God and shunned evil. So God was not doing these things to Job because of sin. It wasn't a correction. But look what Job says in Job 42, verse 1. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. God had many purpose for allowing these incredible trials and losses in Job's life. One of them was to teach Job more about the power and the authority of God. Job was a godly man, as I said. He was not living in sin. He wasn't in nothing God was trying to correct in his life necessarily, but he was wanting to deepen his understanding even more. Every single one of us are sinners. And God is infinitely holy and wise. And he can do whatever he wants to do with any of us, as Job just said. I know, Lord, you can do anything and none of your purposes can be withheld. And we who know Christ, we're going to stand around the throne of God one day as John foresaw, the Apostle John in in Revelation 4 and 5, and we're going to say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and power and honor, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So blessing and glory and power and honor be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So God's discipline is often designed to teach us more about him. So when God disciplines us or chastening, as Hebrews 12 calls it, it's sometimes for correction, sometimes for prevention, sometimes just for our education. But to our text here in Hebrews 12, Jesus is our role model. He is our example. He is our inspiration. He endured incredible hostility from sinners. He told us, he told his disciples in the Gospels, we may very well have those same kinds of experiences. But even these Hebrew followers of Jesus were not being killed yet, the writer says. You have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. Laughed at maybe. Scorned and ridiculed and mocked and threatened perhaps. But they hadn't been killed yet. So the writer challenges them to view their circumstances, view all of that suffering they were enduring, to view all the persecution, all the troubles and trials. He challenges them to view those circumstances as God's discipline. Because he says, you have forgotten the words of Solomon, 
in Proverbs 3. Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, or be rebuked by him, for, or when you are rebuked by him, don't be discouraged. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. So let me give you, fairly briefly, two dangers in discipline, two proofs of discipline, two results in discipline. First, the two dangers, two wrong responses. Verse 5 and 6, verse 5, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. In other words, don't despise it, don't reject it, don't look down on it, don't harden your heart. Some people do. They, they harden their heart against God. They're mad at God. Why did God let these things come into my life? And I, I've tried to serve God for all these years. And I thought I was doing right. And now trouble came. And, and my car broke down. And, and I broke my leg. And I lost my job. And on and on and on. And, on. and well, why is God doing this? And the writer here said, hey, don't, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't harden your heart. And then he says, don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't faint. Don't be discouraged. Don't, don't throw in the towel. Don't harden your heart and don't throw in the towel. And say, I'm done. I'm done with this stuff. That's the way God treats his kids. It's over for me. Probably just means you're not really saved. But there are God's children, unfortunately, who, who have struggles in those areas. And I have observed over the, all these decades of ministry, both of those responses. As some Bible teachers have said, trials can make you bitter or better. Don't let them make you bitter. Let them make you better. Don't harden your heart. Don't quit on following the Lord. Don't focus on yourself and what you think you deserve. Take heart. Be encouraged. Have confidence in God because of the two proofs in discipline. Verse 7, 8, and 9. He said, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? If you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, you are illegitimate and not sons. The two proofs in discipline, one is God loves you. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, verse 6 says. The, the, the second proof is God knows you. And when the Bible speaks of knowing a person, it, ind it indicates that there is a relationship, not just an acquaintance. There is a relationship. See, God disciplines all of his children. And if God doesn't discipline us, then it means he doesn't love us and he doesn't know us. And that is a terrifying thought. If we are truly saved, God is going to discipline us. And, and, and if you and I can, can roll along through life and you never experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if God never convicts you or rebukes you or challenges you, or you can read the Word of God or listen to the Word of God being preached, and you can, and you can go roll along through life and nothing ever stirs you or nothing ever convicts you, regardless of what we may do or how we, how we may live, then the writer here says, man, we better check our salvation. Because he said, in verse 8, if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, you are illegitimate and not sons. In other words, you don't really know the Lord. Because God chastens every son. And He proves it. But I mean, He says, I love you and I know you, so I'm going to treat you like one of my kids. I'm going to discipline you. 
And if, and if he doesn't discipline us, then the writer of Hebrews says, then we're, we're, we're fake. We're fake believers. It'll be like those guys in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. They say, I've cast out demons in your name, Lord. I've done mighty works in your name. And on and on and on they go. And he says, Jesus is going to look at them and say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. He never had a relationship with them. Even though they were doing wonderful spiritual things. So these two proofs in discipline, God loves you, God knows you, and then the two results in discipline. Verses 10 and 11. For they indeed, meaning our earthly fathers, for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he, meaning God, for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The two results of discipline are we will be partakers in His holiness and we will produce the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Now you say holiness and righteousness, those are obviously related concepts. Yes, they are. They're not identical. They are related, but they're not identical. Holiness is purity being separate from sin, like the Lord Jesus Christ in attitude, totally unlike the world, and very much like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he says we will be partakers of His holiness. Righteousness, on the other hand, is doing, it's doing the right thing. Being in the right relationship with God and man. That's why it's called a fruit the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We are doing the right thing with God and man. We have become like the Lord Jesus Christ in attitude. We are partakers of His holiness. We are in right standing with Him and with the people around us. And notice He said all this is for our profit. It's for our good and God's glory. You see, we can become what God wants us to become when we have been trained, as he said right at the end of verse 11, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it or exercised by it. That root word there, that word that's translated trained, is the root word gymnasium. Gymnasium in the Greek language. It's what our, we have our, our English word gymnasium. In other words, we've been trained by discipline. That's where I got that metaphor, that word picture of sweating it out in the gym with our personal trainer, the Holy Spirit of God, urging us on, pushing us to the limits of our endurance, challenging us to never give up. Discipline is God's training room. God's gymnasium where He is working in our lives to make us what He wants us to be. A British Bible teacher from a couple generations ago, his name was Arthur Pink. I always thought that was an interesting last name, but uh, Arthur Pink, A.W. Pink, he went by. Born in, the, born in the 1880s, he died, I think, 1952. So he's been gone for a number of years. He wrote this massive commentary on the book of Hebrews. It's over 700 pages long. My copy is about four inches thick. If you dropped it on your toe, you'd probably break your toe. I think it's huge. Dr. Pink commenting on God's chastening. He says this, his discipline. He says, form the habit of responding to God's taps and you'll be less likely to receive his raps. Good thought. 
form the habit of responding to God's taps, and you'll be less likely to receive His raps. You see, the way that you and I respond to the troubles of life is the number one indicator of our spiritual maturity. Annie Johnson Flint, a writer and speaking of some of the trials she experienced, wrote a beautiful song. It's called, He Giveth More Grace. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, He addeth His mercy. To multiplied trials, His multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. When God puts us into His gymnasium of discipline, and He urges us forward, and He pushes us to the limits of our endurance, can you and I see His discipline with eyes of faith? Can we understand why God is doing what He's doing? Can we see His discipline with eyes of faith? That's the number one indicator of our spiritual maturity. Let's pray. Lord, we know we live in a sin-cursed world and we are sin-cursed people. And we are sinners and we know that we need You and we thank You for dying on the cross for our sins. We know, Lord, that is the only way that we will ever be forgiven and that we will ever reach heaven is by putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did for us on the cross. And Lord, when we become a part of your family, you're going you're to treat us like your children. You're not going to leave us wallowing in our sin, doing foolish things, living carnal lives. You're going to chasten us. You're going to discipline us. You're going to try to produce in us uh, the, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You want us to be partakers of your holiness. You want us to be sharp and Christ-like and, and standing for what is right, and living a life of integrity and holiness. So Lord, you're going you're gonna to chasten us because you love us and because you know us. Help us, Lord, when those trials and troubles and challenges come our way, to view those things with eyes of faith, to trust you, and to follow You, and to obey You, regardless of the circumstances. May we stand for what is right, and may we be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ as the months and years pass. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.